God the Holy Spirit, let us pray for the true faith needed on our way, that He may defend us when life is ending, and from Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let us pray. O God, you make the minds of your faithful to be of one will. Grant that we may love what you have commanded and desire what you promise, that among the many changes of this world our hearts may be fixed where true joys are found. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Looking at the congregation at prayer, I ever have these feelings that there's some other power at work messing with your life. Before I went to the hospital on Friday morning, I replaced the psalm prayer for Psalm 98. And here I see last week's psalm prayer is for Psalm 98. All right, so you can pray that prayer a second week in a row. Uh, our, um, our congregation at Prayer Table of Duties, as we uh, run to the end of, a, of an academic year, what does God's Word say to employers and supervisors? Masters, treat your slaves in the same way as the Lord treats you. There's an anchoring into the grace of God. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So the impartiality of the Christian faith. And then, what does God's word say to youth? Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. 
all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So those are the table of duties sections for this week. And since we followed the sequence in the Bible narratives of resurrection appearances of Jesus on to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost last week, we now switch to uh, the Gospel of Luke for the remainder of the spring and summer. Uh, so it'll carry us through the end of the, of the school year and on through the summer. And uh, that means that there'll be continuous readings from the Old Testament, and you can see them there starting tomorrow with Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 18. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon. So Solomon wrote three books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Proverbs, the most famous. Uh, secondly, the Song of Solomon, which is this love song sonnet. And then the third one is Ecclesiastes here. So uh, there's, some, there's some joy in Ecclesiastes. There's also some rather dark uh, passages there. So that's the congregation at prayer for the week. If you, have the, um, if you have your handout from last week, and you turn to page two, um, the four loves that C.S. Lewis talks about, and he draws this from the scriptures, affection, friendship, eros, and charity. All four are good. Charity is the translation of the word agape, which is God's love, which is the perfect love, the perfect self-giving sacrificial love. It is the love which is God's by nature, which then he shares with us. Uh, affection, friendship, and eros, which are also God's gifts, can be a corrupted by sin. So uh, we did talk last week about need love and gift love, and the divine love is um, preeminently a gift love, particularly with his relationship to us, gifting us with life and the creation and so forth. Uh, the need love, we need God's love. We also need love from one another. A child needs love from the parents. Uh, the wife needs the love of her husband, and so forth. So the bold section in the middle of page 2, the Apostle Peter was a recipient of this charity, this agape love, in the Lord's call to him at the beginning of the three-year ministry with Jesus, and in the Lord's forgiving grace that forgave him and reinstated him to an office that called him to love the Lord by loving others more than he loved himself. You will note this last week we had the, resurrection, the third resurrection appearance of Jesus on the Sea of Tiberias, and there were seven apostles there, Peter, Andrew, uh, James and John, Philip and Nathaniel, and two others. And in that, on that occasion, Jesus asked the question, Peter, do you love me? more than these. And the, the, and then there's the threefold, do you love me, and then do you love me, then feed my sheep, feed, ten, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. The very first question, though, do you love me, is the agape love, the, the charity love. And do you love me more than these? And, and part of what Jesus is talking about there is that for us as Christians and for him as an apostle, uh, in order for him to be faithful, in order for us to be faithful to Christ, the love of Christ must trump all other loves. So, love for Christ above love for a spouse, love for Christ above love for children, love for Christ above love for anything else. Do you love me more than these? Okay. So, Peter 
Peter being a recipient of that charity is what enabled him to finally be faithful and to suffer all, even death, rather than fall away from Christ. Now, in the outline, it says, we typically use one word for love in English, even though the word has different meanings depending upon the context. And those meanings are often very different, aren't they? So I could say, I love custard. And then I could say, I love Beth. Same word, same construction to the sentence, right? But hopefully, the love for Beth is a little different than the love for custard. Now, admittedly, for some men, maybe it isn't the case, but okay. Now, I give you some examples here, though. I love the Cubs. I love God. I mean, two very, very different usages there. But, but also, now that, that's really easy to see. But in the next one, I love my wife and I love my children. These are extremely uh, central kinds of loves to the human uh, condition and experience created by God. Uh, they're, they're fervent, but they're very different. So I love my wife and how I love her and the ordering of that love, the shape of it, is very different from I love my children, the ordering and the shape of that love. And there have been parents who have quote-unquote loved a child the way they've loved a spouse, which is disordered and a perversion. Okay, so um, I have known of fathers who have sexually abused children. Well, that is a perversion of any kind of description of parental love in the scriptures. And even the love for wife, which also takes on the love of friendship, the love of charity, and erotic love, is never a coercive love. Okay? So you may have heard the expressions of things like this, that uh, a husband, is it possible for a husband to rape his wife? And, and the, act, the answer is actually yes. It is. And so he cannot use his office of headship as a way in which he can then dominate and coerce his wife for his own self-gratification. So even eros or erotic love is, for us as Christians, a self-giving love. Okay. So all loves for us as Christians are to be patterned after Christ's love in the sacrifice of himself. And please bear in mind that we live in a world in which that narrative is absolutely foreign. And love is always, in its various forms, cast in a self-centered. You know, what am I going to get out of this? I'm not being fulfilled, I'm not being uh, satisfied, I'm not being respected, I'm not being honored. Whenever that is the focus, the love is for self. You know, like, I am not being respected, I am being disrespected, whether it's by a child or a spouse or, or someone else. You know, I'm being disrespected. Then... The, the main focus is upon one's self. So, it, of course, it's not easy to, to suffer those things, but love is always moving out for the beloved, for the benefit of the other. All right. Uh, another example there, I'm in love with you, spoken to a spouse. I love you. Or you could say, I love you, spoken to a spouse. I love you, spoken to a friend or a parishioner. What would happen if these loves were confused? In any of the examples, it would result in idolatry. It could result in adultery. 
It could result in fornication, and all of this is some form of perversion. And at the heart of perversion is, again, as we just said, self-centeredness, satisfying the desires of one's heart. This is where, and one's flesh, this is where need love has to be properly ordered. And the only one that can truly satisfy our deepest needs to be loved is Christ. Because even though children need love from their parents, what do their parents sometimes and often do? They sin. They fail them. How many of you are perfect parents? Raise your hand. Uh, even though a wife needs the love of her husband, often her husband's love, what? Fails her. Okay? Here is one of the things that is at the heart of perversion. When we are not receiving what we need, a wife from a husband, children from parents, we can be tempted to seek what we need where it is not to be found in a disordered relationship. Okay? So a man who has an affair outside of marriage because he's not receiving what he needs. A wife who enters into some kind of relationship because she's lonely and is not receiving what she needs. And this is where we need to be taught. And this is where a, a private confession and absolution and then the devotional life of individual Christian prayer and meditation fills the void. So in the, uh, in the catechism prayers, for example, uh, and we had it in the congregation at prayer a couple of weeks ago with respect to wives, when their husbands fail them, it's a prayer addressed to the Lord Jesus, teach them to find their sufficiency in you. And that's always the proper place. So when, when what we need in God's ordering is not being um, supplied to us in our life, then we are called to look to Christ for what we need when, the, when others have failed us. Do, do you follow that? Now let me, uh, Mark is going to take Pastor Gelbach. He's still wrestling with a kidney stone. This, by the time they actually take this kidney stone out, it's going to be the size of a grapefruit, I think. But, uh... On your examples, you've yeah. got what would happen if these loves were confused and one of the things you said was idolatry. So I'm trying to, I, mean, I love the cubs and I love God, that I get but I wasn't understanding why well, idolatry fits into the other. Sure. You can make a god out of, well, you could make a god out of the cubs, right? Um, out of sports. You can also make a god out of god, any of God's good gifts, like a spouse or like children, okay? Uh, or a friendship or your life's work which you might love, okay? And the only road to true contentment and peace under sadness and disappointment is the love of Christ above all things. That's why I brought up that business of Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than these? You know, what are the these? Are they the parishioners he may preach to? Yes. Are they his fellow disciples? Yes. Are they his wife? He was married? Yes. Are they his mother-in-law? Yes. He's all of these things. So Jesus says, you know, whoever does not, uh, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And that sounds so harsh, so, so dramatically harsh. But um, nothing can trump faith and love for Christ above all things. Um, 
If it does, it will result in idolatry. Okay? Every sin is a form of idolatry. Okay? You can have the most wonderful family in the world and be all devoted to each other and then completely uh, ignore Christ and the one thing needful. Uh, Mark, I think Lord Wallace has a... He's over here, center aisle. So the four. I call him Lord Wallace because it's such a like an English name, you know. That's that's the only reason. Okay. So the four components of love that we got listed here are really uh, under the guise of um, true faith. Then I'm saying. Well, they're they're God's gifts, um, and they come from the God of love. And what I think is interesting is that all of the things that this is something we have. We don't talk about very often, but it's true uh, that, believe it or not, every personality trait on the, and every characteristic of love is found within God, but it's always properly ordered. Is there wrath? Yes. Is there anger? Yes. Is there um, a sense of humor? In God, yes. Um, he is the author of all of these things. But with God, they're always properly ordered and, and, and properly expressed. And always the I love you of God is always for the benefit of the one who is loved, which is key. So um, this is why, then, going back to Susan's question, the love for Christ above all others is the supreme love. And when the love for Christ is intact above all others, then we will love rightly in marriage, in family, in congregation. And then we will suffer rightly when what we need from others is not supplied. See, the sinful condition is a priori. You know, it's a, it's, since the fall, we will not receive everything that we need from those people from whom we are to receive it. And that's why in the church, we pray for marriage, we pray for children, we pray for orphans, we pray for widows, we pray for the divorced, we pray for all of these people so that they find their sufficiency in Christ and are healed by him. Okay, other, other questions at this, at this juncture? Yes, right, and so the love for the enemies is, uh, or even if it doesn't get quite to the enemy status, you know, uh, is, uh, again, a love that is for the benefit of the beloved, okay? Hate, you know, the opposite of loving the enemy, hate is a withholding of any kind of mercy, a withholding of any kind of compassion. Or withholding of any kind of love. Okay? John, did you have a question? No. Okay. All right, so I've got some three bold statements down here in the bottom. The Christian pastor and the church need to know and understand that we have in God's design a legitimate need to give love and receive love. And the reason I'm, I'm arguing for this thesis is the more we understand that, the more we have a, a capacity for empathy. Empathy and compassion for a sinner who is struggling does not mean the endorsement of the sin or what they're tempted to. Do you, do you follow? Um, so that's critically important to, to understand that we have a legitimate need to give love and to receive love. And that means then the study of the scriptures is how is that ordered so that we are living rightly in Christ. We also need to be aware of how Satan takes what is legitimate and twists it into what is disordered and illegitimate especially when we do not receive the love we are designed to receive. 
So that's his hook, see? We're designed to receive love from a particular person, like a child from a parent. And when that isn't there, then the devil is quick to put his hook in there and lead us to find that love elsewhere in a disordered relationship. Okay? I, friends are wonderful. And friends for our children are wonderful. But our children can't receive the love from a friend that they're supposed to receive from mom and dad. And when they do, or when the love of the friendship trumps uh, the love that they are to receive from mom and dad, it is fraught with disorder and problems. So in this regard, you know, even before we get into some of the more gross perversions of homosexuality or something like that, we can see it in our own uh, lives. I don't know how many parents I've talked to whose um, grown children have returned, not that they were ever far, far away from them, but they've gotten a lot closer to them as the children have become adults and gotten married and start raising their own family, then suddenly uh, the lessons that they should have learned, you know, are being learned, and then there's a drawing closer to mom and dad, sometimes with, forgive me for being such a recalcitrant brat, you know, and thinking you had nothing to give me and that I didn't need you. Okay. So uh, Martin Luther calls this satanic influence is... Um, Try this out for size. Satan has no capacity to create anything out of nothing. There's a thesis for you. He only takes what is created and messes with it. Uh, Martin Luther calls this the contrast between the church of Cain and the church of Abel. The church of Cain is where there's this, you know, tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, vengeance, resentment uh, in, in Cain and those who would follow his unbelieving ways. And the church of Abel is the church of faith in the grace of God. In the same vein, then, he talked, Luther talked about Satan aping God. Okay? And we see this today in, see, marriage and family are good. So Satan doesn't actually say, we don't need marriage. Instead, what does he do? He redefines marriage can be any permutation of relationships. Two men, two women, and so forth. You see, so you take the good institution and then you pervert it. That's what Satan does. Um, even, have you heard of the satanic mass? Have you heard of that? You know, the satanic mass has the cross upside down. There is a liturgy. There is word followed by, quote, sacrament. Okay? Maybe there are animal sacrifices and the drinking of blood. So in a lot of ways, it looks like what the church does, but it apes it. It perverts it. So with the human institutions, that's what, God, that's what Satan does to God's good gifts. Satan uses our sinful abuses of proper love to tempt, corrupt, and pervert love into something that is not love, but a, rather a departure from what is good. And here again is where the empathy comes in. So I've got some examples here. I hope they're not too uncomfortable to hear, but examples of perverted love that can lead uh, to a disordered sexual life. The, and I put it in quotes, soft abuse. I don't know um, if any abuse can be considered soft, but uh, of a child emotionally like uh, a, a foster mother 
who did not give love in the way that God called her to love her child, but made demands upon her child that taught her that the mother's love had to be earned, that it was conditioned upon the basis of merit as opposed to unconditional, that it resulted, uh, and it resulted then over time in a disordered view of femininity. So the, the little girl's femininity was seen as something she's given by God to, to please men with. And the office of wife in marriage, I'm there to please my husband and to do what he wants to earn his love. Okay. So um, we, we sometimes uh, devalue or do not consider uh, significantly enough the damage that can be done uh, emotionally to children through what they experience. They're very resilient, absolutely. Their children are incredibly resilient in God's design, thankfully. And the child who is in the Christian home and environment and the child that is in the church and the child that is in the uh, active in the ministry of word and sacrament has, has the capacity uh, a greater, much greater capacity to overcome some of that soft uh, emotional abuse. But, but we dare not underestimate the power of and destructive force of that abuse. Another example, a sexually abused child may grow up hating who they are as a little boy or a little girl. And there was a recent uh, podcast on Issues Etc. Lutheran Public Radio that talked about um, now a mother, uh, happily married mother, and a wife and mother, and uh, she was uh, tempted because of this very thing in her uh, early adolescence to have a sex change operation and to take hormone therapy. Now, sex change operations are, we, we need to call it what it is, which is child abuse. Um, and uh, fortunately, um, doctors and others prevailed upon her and she did not end up going through with it. And then she got the help that she needed and as a Christian woman, a wife and a mother and so forth. And now has children that she's able to love. So um, the sin committed against them, as I say in this paragraph, defiles them physically and spiritually. That's part of the reason why they don't want to be what they are. So here again, the defilement is, that doesn't mean then we acquiesce to the results of the defilement. But, but if we don't understand it, then we are not exhibiting true charity and compassion for them. So it may cause self-loathing and a desire to completely change who and what they are, to flee from what the abuse has done to them and their sense of value or self-worth. Or the abuse may become self-corrupting to the degree that they act out what was done to them in relationships with others that are disordered. Um, uh, and we have seen this. So the same abuse that a child suffers, they end up committing as adults. Number three. A boy exposed to pornography at a young age is stimulated to see women and the gift of sexuality as objects for his own self-gratification and pleasure, which would be introverted love to, the, to, to a horrendous degree, uh, rather than growing into adulthood with the sense of the sanctity of marriage and the gift of human sexuality within marriage for the spiritual, emotional, and physical giving and receiving of love. And I think um, this is where 
fathers and mothers have an opportunity to do two things. To create a chaste home environment. And by chaste home environment, that means certain television programs, certain movies, simply ought not to be viewed in the home. Um, one would question the idea whether or not they should be viewed even as adults, but absolutely and categorically not for children. I mean, a, some, some of these PG-13s are anything but um, acceptable, and certainly R-rated movies and their depictions are, uh, are unacceptable. So this is the first area to create chastity in the home. There's a lot of other things that can be done in the home than plunking down in front of, we used to call it the boob tube. Does anybody still? Oh, it's a double entendre, isn't it? Uh, you know, now these days, you know, but um, it, uh, televisions have become babysitters. Tablets have become babysitters. Um, let's Let's play games, let's read wholesome books. The elementary uh, ages are extremely important for that. So to create a chaste environment in the home. And part of that chastity involves, and this is going to start to lead into the second area that I want to talk about here, but part of that chastity involves that dad is seen properly loving his wife in displays of affection which are not um, interpreted in any way as a you know, self-gratification, but as a way in which the children are seeing how dad loves their mother. So when he hugs her, when he kisses her, when he embraces her when she is suffering and sad, teaches a different aspect of the physical act of love. Now, obviously, the children do not see the one flesh union act happening between mom and dad, but, but that's not the only physicality that takes place in, in marriage. Okay? So, hugging and embracing that demonstrate care, support, sacrifice, shouldering burdens. That's hugely important, which then leads into this, this second area under um, the, I first said, creating chastity in the home. The other area is to talk about what God's gift, and this is for parents to do, what God's gift of being a boy, a man, being a girl or a wife is for. And so it is for the giving and receiving of love within marriage. And they will see some of that in the affection that mom and dad have for each other in the home. And they see it in the wonderful gift of having children. So love and the extension of love and the extension of life go together. So to actually talk about those things and not to consider them taboo subjects, but to talk about them age appropriately, what a wonderful gift this is, this chastity that God has given to you, and then the opportunity when it is God's will and in his plan for you to have a husband and to receive his love and what to look for in a husband who is first and foremost a Lutheran Christian, who goes to church, who treats women with honor and respect. What to look for in a wife, uh, a woman who is beautiful but is not, you know, uh, is not um, doing things with her body that are titillating and provocative for the male to think only of her as a sex object and so forth. So 
I don't think, I mean, I won't ask for a show of hands, but any of you who are, you know, like 50 and above, were you ever talked to or catechized by a pastor that throughout your life that you should teach your children the healthy understanding of human sexuality? I, I don't think probably any of you were ever taught that. All right, so I took a, a digression here. I mean, I have known of situations, uh, Paul Wehrman has a question. I have known situations where fathers have put up, uh, I mean, I don't even know, and, and I don't know anymore, but you know, Playboy magazine, Penthouse magazine, centerfolds on display on the walls of, of the home, perhaps in, uh, in dad's um, study. You know, is, is that appropriate? Absolutely not. But it, it also does incredible damage to little boys as well as girls if they go into mom and dad's room and they see this. Are you kidding me? All right. Um, I was going to say that uh, a child... Uh, having a smartphone can uh, take his uh, pornography uh, source with him far removed from parents or other responsible adults. Uh, maybe you would know or maybe a more technical person than I, say uh, Mr. Ferguson or others, uh, would know whether these devices can be so configured to an effect censor out uh, such uh, material. Yeah, they, they, they can be, and parents ought to be extremely proactive in doing that so that there are safeguards uh, taken. And, and the other thing is, you know, maybe not everybody has to have a cell phone when they're four years old. Just saying. Maybe even 10 years old, they don't need a cell phone. Okay. Uh, and maybe, maybe, maybe that'll be a benefit of runaway inflation. You know, it'll become cost prohibitive, some of those things. So, you know, there can be advantages. Take advantage of it. All right, I want to get through the, the, the remainder of this today. The, the next example I give, the temptation to lesbianism. And we mentioned some of this last week, but a woman, uh, women who do not see Christ's love and compassion in the men in their lives seek this love from the tenderness and compassion of other women. Now let me talk a little bit about the uh, compassion from the men in their lives. Believe it or not, it is extremely important for girls, little girls, to be shown proper love and affection by their fathers as well as their mothers but particularly by their fathers. Because that, that gives them mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Um, I mentioned to you last week about what happens in these horrible orphanages in Europe where children are literally from infancy in the first couple of years caged in a crib. You know, they're their diaper may be changed. They may be given some, some food, of course, to keep them alive. But what they're not receiving is physical affection. So the proper physical affection that a father shows a daughter is hugely important because it also teaches... Have, have you ever heard this expression? You know, you marry someone like your... You know, the, the wife, the, the, the woman marries someone like her father, you know, or, or the, the man marries someone like his mother. And there can be a lot of truth in that. It's not universally uh, the case, but there can be a lot of truth in that. And when proper affection is shown to little girls by their father, then they are taught to look for that in a man because they're taught that's what a man is, okay? 
And so that links also then to how the father shows proper love and respect for his wife. Okay? So then that teaches her in a very powerful way uh, who to look for in, in a spouse. Um, second thing, it's not uh, uh, it's a bit of a tangent here. I think we devalue and don't appreciate how important affection is for little boys. Um, we want our boys, you know, if we're, if we're conservative Christians, we want our boys to be masculine. Believe it or not, masculinity is not created by simply saying, tough it up, Steve. But actually, little boys need every bit the affection and love of parents as little girls do. When they're loved properly by mom and dad, they grow up properly. Okay. So you've got the macho Kevin here. Obviously, your, your parents loved you. Demonstrated in your masculinity. Okay. But the, the point of this, then, uh, women who do not see Christ's love and compassion in the men in their lives seek this love from the tenderness and compassion of other women. So that is a temptation. Again, this does not endorse it. But understanding what can happen uh, is an important part of the empathy needed in order to give pastoral care. All right, the power of lust. Uh, the lie that one's biological identity is merely a personal instrument by which one should indulge his or her self-centered desires and insatiable need love that is disordered and leads to loneliness and a lack of fulfillment in all human relationships. And this is seen in uh, the world today. Um, she's just not meeting my needs. Okay, uh, that's an example of how this manifests itself. The power of peer pressure in a society that has completely rejected God's good order in favor of mental and emotional health that, quote unquote, that rejects the objective goodness of God's order. So 50 years ago, we didn't have the kind of peer pressure that we have today because the disordered lifestyle is mainstreamed as the ordered lifestyle, and if you don't accept it, then you're a bigot, has allowed the acceleration of these perversions. Okay, uh, five points of pastoral care for those tempted to a disordered lifestyle. Number one, for, this is for pastors, but I think it's important for the church to understand this too, and for you who might have um, members of your family, extended family, struggling with these things, the need to accurately diagnose the origins of the disordered desires or temptations, which is where confession and absolution on multiple occasions can be helpful. Number two, the need for patient conversation uh, to learn the truth of what has happened to a person. It's so easy to quickly damn. And if Christ desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, the knee-jerk damnation of a person is not in the spirit of that will of God. Our diagnosis as pastors is a theological, law gospel, creation, salvation, spiritual diagnosis that is anchored in Christ. So that's why I've been doing a lot about bringing creation and salvation together where in the new creation, God does not obliterate the old, but he sanctifies and makes it new. So who are we in Christ as our creator and redeemer? What is his gift of love for us? What does it mean? What does the forgiveness of sins in Christ mean for us? How does Christ's absolution not only forgive my sin and make me whole, but also cleanse and sanctify me from the sins that others have committed against me? And I've talked about this before. I mention it again that... We need the absolution and private confession absolution not only for the sins that I have committed, but for the sins committed against me to be cleansed 
by the forgiving word of the gospel is extremely powerful. So what does Christ's acceptance mean? You know, the acceptance of who I am, that's part of as a man or as a woman, my sexuality, or who I am if there are deformities. You know, if there are things that are, if I'm missing an arm or a leg, um, God accepts me in Christ and I look forward to the resurrection. We live, unfortunately, in a world that wants instant gratification, including the fixing of all physical problems that have come into the world as a result of the fall. So what does Christ's acceptance not mean? And certainly doesn't embrace, mean embracing of disorder. How do we suffer the failures and sin of those who have desecrated their God-given office? And here's where I'll say, there's only one relationship that you cannot live without, and that is your relationship with Christ. That's the only non-negotiable relationship. You might find yourself in relationships that threaten to destroy your very life and faith. They may need to end for the sake of preservation of faith in Christ. Number four, the importance of pastoral care involving counsel from God's word, confession and absolution, and prayer. And again here in parentheses, confession and absolution uh, is one of the most profoundly intimate moments wherein we are given the love of Christ that we need to recreate us and make us whole. It is also the strength to give and receive love as God has so ordered it for our lives. And then finally, the importance of the body and blood of Christ. You think about this, we are physical beings, sexual beings, so there is a connection then to the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, the feast of love to cleanse, to sanctify, and to renew us, body and soul, within our God-given calling. So I'm sorry to race through those last ones at the end, but um, hopefully this is um, insightful and helpful to you. My main, uh, among my main objectives is to create a sense of compassion for those who are tempted to disorder lifestyle and to not be so quick to simply condemn. It doesn't mean we accept the lifestyle, but understanding uh, some of the components that are going into this enables us to actually love them rightly as Christians and to offer them the right kind of pastoral care. All right, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.